to Off Trail Learning. This is Blake Bowles. In this episode, I'm not interviewing anyone. This is a recording of a talk that I gave in May 2019 at a homeschooling conference in Southern California called Yes, You Can Quit Traditional High School and Everything Will Be Okay. And I gave this talk all across the U.S. in late 2018 on my speaking tour. And I think this is the last time I'm giving it. And so I recorded it. And I've also uploaded the slides. If you're on a computer or a tablet and you want to follow along, all you have to do is go to blakebowles.com slash yes, you can, all lowercase, dot PDF. And you'll find the slides there. This is a talk I designed for parents who are just on the edge of making the decision about what to do in the middle school and high school years, but it can also be listened to by homeschoolers, unschoolers, alternative school students and parents with profit. So without further ado, I give you myself. <laughs> okay, here we go. Good morning. Good morning. This is my little sister, Olivia. She's 18. She lives up in Northern California, and she is just about to graduate from high school. Olivia loves school, and school loves Olivia. She does everything. She's in multiple clubs, student government, AP classes, drama. She has some stress from the college prep pressures, but it's manageable. This talk is not for the Olivias of the world. So sorry, dear sister. This talk is for other kinds of teenagers. This talk is for the Gavins of the world. Gavin is from Omaha, Nebraska, and he did fine in elementary school, but come middle school, he started arguing with his parents more about homework. And he had a lot of love for filmmaking and for writing, but once he got to ninth grade, he knew pretty quickly he wouldn't have any time to do either of those. This talk is for the Kims of the world. Kim is from Western Massachusetts. And she struggled with some health issues, some sleep disorders. In middle school, she was struggling just to stay on top of the homework, but the stress kept piling up. And by the time she got to high school, she knew that it was not going to go well. And this talk is for the Toms of the world. Tom is from Chicago, and he was always one of these super smart kids, always ahead of the class, especially in math. But when he got to high school, uh, Tom has this thing where uh, he likes to question authority, and uh, it didn't really serve him too well come high school. He was also quite bored, and that boredom evolved into stress and anxiety and depression synd syndromes, and he actually had to leave high school in his sophomore year to go work with some professionals for his like, clinical levels of anxiety and depression. And so he came back to high school, the beginning of his junior year, thinking, all right, now it's going to be different, and it wasn't different. So it's for kids like these that another day spent in middle school or high school is truly a day wasted. It's another day of growing apathy or boredom or stress or nihilism and perhaps deteriorating mental health. And so it's for kids like these and many others that I've come here to say, and I've been on a long speaking tour to say, Yes, you can quit traditional high school and everything will be okay. Or since we're at a homeschooling conference, yes, you can never send your kid to high school <laughs> and everything will be okay. But there's an elephant in the room. Let's, let's talk about this elephant. 
I went to high school, and everything turned out okay. Okay, would you raise your hand if you also went to high school? And that's most of us, yeah? And you all seem like functional people, yes? So I went to California public schools. I mostly grew up in Bakersfield, and I did the compulsory curriculum. I learned how to conjugate Spanish verbs, solve algebra equations, write five-paragraph essays, and I finished, and I went to college, and great, what's the big deal, right? This is the story we tell ourselves. If I can get through high school, so can you. It's not that bad. Hmm. The thing is, when I was in high school, I was learning a lot. I was doing well by the standards of school, but there was something else going on. There was other stuff that I was learning below the surface. And so I've come to think of high school as kind of like an iceberg, Okay, 10% of the mass of an iceberg is above the surface. 90% is below. When we think and we talk about high school, we're talking about that top 10%, the visible part. But there's so much more under the surface. So when we think and talk about high school, this is what I think we usually talk about. We talk about the subjects that young people are being taught. And we assume that learning is happening. And... Uh, the basics do get taught in school, like very basic uh, math, reading, writing. Kids do seem to retain a lot of that. But once we get up into middle and high school levels, uh, the subjects actually are really poorly retained. When you look at uh, adult retention of foreign language or science or math, it's shockingly abysmal. And so when you say kids are learning stuff in school, that's not quite accurate. They're being taught stuff in school. That doesn't mean they're going to hold on to it. So the next place we go when we think about what happens in high school is, oh, by the way, I'm not pulling these facts out of thin air. These are coming from a very recent peer-reviewed book, The Case Against Education, highly recommended. The next thing that we talk about is critical thinking or building mental muscles. And when you look at the research, uh, this does happen. Kids who spend more time in school do become slightly more critical thinkers, but it's so slight that you have to ask the question, what else could these kids have been doing during this period of time to make them slightly better thinkers. So that's not a strong argument either. Okay, next, we talk about smarts or IQ. And this is an interesting one because the more time you spend in formal school, the higher your IQ is. But there's a caveat here. Does anyone know what the caveat is? If you test someone's IQ right after they've spent time in school, it's higher. But if you wait a number of years, it's right back to where it was before. It's kind of like these early childhood intervention programs where you take some hapless four-year-old and force them to sit through academic you know, preparations, and then you test them against all other four-year-olds, and lo and behold, they perform higher on academic tests until you wait a couple years and you go back and they're all six years old and they all perform the exact same. And so time scale matters whenever you hear these statistics about you know, school makes kids smarter or raises their IQ or they learn stuff. What about in the long run? Finally, the last bastion of, of defense for traditional school is, okay, well, at least they're learning relevant job skills. Okay. If, you, if you've ever been an employer and you know, what, you know how much on-the-job training is needed, you know that this is not quite true. Uh, yeah, no, we're just going to move on from job skills very quickly. Yeah, I have nothing else to say about that. So what does happen in high school? I've worked with a lot of teenagers uh, who have left school, and I've heard their stories, and I have my own experience of high school back from the late 90s, and it doesn't seem like it's that different. 
So here are some stories from my time in school. My first experience was boredom, just feeling my time wasted in way too many of my classes. I'd like to submit one piece of evidence for boredom, and here it is. <clears throat> 3.14-1592-6535-8979-323-846-264-3383. I think that's still pi to 27 digits, and that's what I spent my senior year math class doing. I was so bored because the teacher was just working through the textbook, and I was like, ugh, that luckily he had posted the digits of pi up around the room, and so I sat there just going like 3.14, 3.1415. And slowly memorizing it. So I guess I retained something from high school, yes. <laughs> But mostly the boredom was, it was serious, it was deep, it was oppressive. Right alongside it was control. I had very little control over my life and my choices when I was in school. Uh, I was in a biology class, and we were also working through the textbook. And I remember I was getting really excited for this thing called spontaneous generation, which is about how life can arise from non-life, how a you know, soup of chemicals can turn into an amoeba. And we were slowly working through our, our chapters, getting closer and closer to it. I was doing the photosynthesis <laughs> stuff so that I could get to the, the really interesting stuff. And Monday morning came around. I knew we were going to start this. And the teacher said, skip to the next chapter. And I said, why? Why are we skipping this? This sounds awesome. And she couldn't give me a reason. She just said, I don't know. I'm sorry. We have to skip it. And that was it. And I realized she was as much uh, a product of control as I was in this situation. She had no, almost no flexibility about how to teach her class. And we students had even less flexibility about what we were going to do in it. The one thing we were not allowed to opt out of, though, was going to the high school football pep rallies. In fact, my school was so serious about this, there were security guards driving around in little golf carts through the halls, making sure no one was doing anything you know, nefarious, like sitting in a classroom quietly reading, God forbid, <laughs> which is all I wanted to do. But no, we had to go to the pep rallies, because that's so important for my growth and development. <laughs> signaling. This is actually what happens in high school. Signaling is an economist term for showing off. In this case, showing that you are a hardworking, diligent, conscientious, and fairly conformist person who will play along. This is kind of important, because we all need to conform in some degree uh, to have work in society, for example. But in school, the main thing we learn how to do is play the school game. It's very handy to succeed in school, and I got very good at playing the school game when I was there. Perhaps many of you did, too. But to be on top of that hierarchy is kind of a false positive feeling. You look to your left and your right, and there's kids who are not that good at playing the school game. And you get all of the praise and the gold stars and the pats on the back, and they are put down for not being able to play the same game as well as you can. And so, yeah, I learned how to signal. I learned how to play the game, but what does that really mean? You add all of this up, and I think the primary experience of most high schoolers is simply indifference. If I'm mostly bored, I'm being controlled, if I'm just learning how to play this school game, and I'm not really learning anything, then what matters? If I have to act wildly enthusiastic about one school subject for an hour, 
and then a bell rings, and I have to shuffle through a hall and act wildly enthusiastic about another school subject for an hour, what's the point? Okay, that last line is not mine. I stole that, okay? And I stole that from this guy. Raise your hand if you know who this is. All right, about half of us. For the other half, I'd like to introduce you to John Taylor Gatto. Gatto was a New York City public school teacher, and he won all these awards for doing really innovative stuff with his middle school English classes. He would get them out of his classroom to go into the different boroughs of New York City, to go do apprenticeships and internships, to do their own little research projects, like going to all the different public swimming pools and raiding them. He would get them involved in local political campaigns. I think he once had a group of kids bake brownies and find the address of a journalist who they wanted to, to do a scoop and leave the brownies on the journalist's doorstep with a nice note. <laughs> and so he did all, all this really cool, innovative, experiential stuff, and he was largely punished for it by his school system. They tried to fire him multiple times. When he went on vacation once, they actually did fire him, and he, had to, he was not notified of this. He had to fight to get his job back. So despite all this, he won New York City Teacher of the Year in 1989, 1990, and 1991. He also won New York State Teacher of the Year in 1990 and 1991. And then he quit. And he wrote an op-ed to the Wall Street Journal saying that he no longer wanted to make a living hurting kids anymore. So this award-winning public school teacher turns his back on the system and he starts writing and lecturing on what he sees as the unsolvable problems of the modern school system, both public and private. Now we've got to go back to my story for a moment. So I did well in high school, and I went to the best college that I could get into, which was UC Berkeley, and I studied the most impressive-sounding thing that I could, which was astrophysics. Oh my, you're welcome, Mom and Dad. I study <laughs> astrophysics at Berkeley. Aren't I wonderful? Except it was all a sham. I did well in math and science in high school, and so I just assumed that's what I should do as an adult. I should become a research scientist. And then when I actually got into it, there was some interesting stuff, but when I got into the, the serious physics, the serious math, that's when I was the one looking to my left and my right and thinking, uh-oh. I don't belong here. This is way out of my league, and I'm actually not that interested in it. Everyone else is actually interested in math. Why am I here? And then I realized there's this movie, 1997, Contact. <laughs> Jodie Foster, Matthew McConaughey. She's an astrophysicist. He's a dreamy, uh, reformed priest. <laughs> they have long discussions about science versus religion, and you know, she gets a message from extraterrestrials, and they build a machine, and she teleports through space and time to meet her deceased father. Uh, this is the life of every astrophysicist, right? <laughs> that, that was my working assumption, that life would be this interesting, and I would have such a romantic experience as a, as a scientist. But then when I saw how actual graduate students worked, they were sitting in their dark computer caves for 12 hours a day when the sun was shining on their Berkeley campus, and I thought, this is not actually what I'm going for. <laughs> But I had a backup plan, and that was to become a high school science teacher. Okay. I knew I liked working with young people. And then I read one of Gatto's books. And here were some of the first words that I saw. It is absurd and anti-life to be part of a system that compels you to listen to a stranger reading poetry when you want to learn to construct buildings. Or to sit discussing the construction of buildings when you want to read poetry. <laughs> That sounded like poetry to me. It just made so much sense, so immediately. I gobbled up 
Gatto's book. And then I did something very dangerous. I went onto Amazon and I looked for, you know, everyone who bought John Taylor Gatto also bought. And I started clicking buy, 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 buy. <laughs> and so all of a sudden I was reading books about the Sudbury Valley School out in Massachusetts. I was reading Summerhill by A.S. Neal. I was reading about homeschooling and this weird thing called unschooling, thanks to the Teenage Liberation Handbook by Grayson Wellen. I read all the reformers from the 60s and 70s, John Holt, some more modern people. And pretty quickly, I realized I got to study this stuff full time. This is way more interesting and relevant than studying the physics of far off galaxies and trying to write papers that only 15 other people in the world will ever read. <laughs> and so I ended up designing my own major in alternative education, and I got to choose all my classes, and so I had a very self-directed second half of college. And so I still graduated with a bachelor's degree, but it's perhaps the least marketable bachelor's degree ever issued <laughs> by UC Berkeley, because I titled it myself. It's Alternative Schooling and Science Education. It did prepare me for my first job at Astro Camp up in Idlewild. <laughs> So as I was mulling over all the stuff that I was reading, especially Gatto's books, I was asking myself, what does it mean to be educated then? What were the most educational experiences in my own life? And so I thought hard going back through high school, through middle school and earlier, and here are a few of the examples I came up with. When I was 11, I went away to summer camp for the first time up near uh, Lake Tahoe in Northern California. This was me taking a selfie with a wind-up camera, you know, before <laughs> selfies were cool. Yeah. And at this summer camp, I was free to go into whatever I wanted to. If I wanted to learn canoeing, I could learn canoeing. Rock climbing, I could learn rock climbing. I ended up learning windsurfing, something I didn't even know existed before I went here. And I got kind of good at it, and I went back the next summer, and I got a little bit better at it. And I got to keep going back and developing these skills and being around other kids who really wanted to be at this outdoorsy summer camp just, you know, playing in the water or in the dirt all day. That was a very powerful, powerful experience, and uh, it was perhaps a very educational experience, too. I always left those two weeks of camp feeling like a changed person. Something else that stood out was when I was 14, my dad said, hey, would you like to live in Chile for a month in South America? He had grown up in a family that had moved around a lot, and he had lived in South America for a little bit. He wanted to extend the same opportunity to me. I'd only taken one year of high school Spanish. Muy poquito español, okay? <laughs> but I said yes. And so I went with the group. We quickly split up, and we were all doing solo homestays. And so I was living with a host brother who was a year older than me. He was 15. And the very first thing that he did when I showed up was he took me out to the high school gymnasium that evening to go to a punk rock show. The band's name was Los Tetas. You can translate that one yourself. <laughs> and the first thing that happened at that show was this young woman beelined across the floor and introduced herself to me. Her name was Varvela. And I was like, Dios mío, it's getting hot in here. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you know, this, this interesting and attractive Chilean woman named Varvela, so exotic, uh, is interested in me. Yes, I will be your, your gringo boy toy for the next week. <laughs> She, she hung out with me for a week, and then I think I bored her, and she dumped me. So, <laughs> Young love, it's a fickle thing. But between Varvala and being with my host family, who would only speak Spanish to me, and having these funny encounters, like uh, we were eating hot dogs. Chileans love hot dogs for some reason, and they put all sorts of toppings on them, including avocado. 
And I did not know the word for avocado in Spanish, and so I was using my Spanglish, and I said, por favor, madre, pásame el abogado. And then, and then she laughed and laughed and laughed at me because abogado means lawyer in Spanish. And so, can I have some lawyer on my hot dog, please? So those kinds of moments just were stuck in my brain. And I learned Spanish very quickly in that situation. Even though it was only a month, uh, I retained a lot. And when I went back to school to take more high school classes, I was really attentive in those classes because I had a reason to be attentive. I also had some good experiences in high school. I took an elective class in graphic design. I learned how to do Photoshop. There was a snowboarding club. Every once in a while, there was an independent study project that I like. So it wasn't all bad, but still, it was mostly control and boredom and indifference. So all the really important stuff in my young education seemed to happen outside of the classroom or in the parts of school where I had a lot of choice. And as I dove into the literature around this, I realized that there's a pretty strong corollary in this, the realm of psychology for what I was learning about myself. Um, every place that I went that I remembered and where I felt educated was a place where I had a genuine choice, first of all, to go there or not in the first place, but also choice within uh, the environment itself. Every place that I remembered, I was building serious skills. I was going deep into something. Spanish, or windsurfing, or Photoshop. And finally, there was always some sort of sense of community or purpose, a reason for all of us to be together in that place. In psychology, there are some parallels here. Autonomy, mastery, and relatedness. These are all part of something called self-determination theory, which is a totally valid, you know, backed-up theory of human motivation. And this is where the terms intrinsic and extrinsic motivation come from. Essentially, when you have real choice, when you are building actual skills, and when you feel like you have a purpose for being there, you're a member of a community, then you can act with intrinsic motivation. You can do something for its own sake, including something very difficult and unpleasant. But when these things are lacking, then you must be extrinsically motivated. Those are the carrots and the sticks, the bribes and the threats. That is the machinery of conventional school or conventional homeschool. And so if you are in a situation where you have these, then you can act as a self-directed learner. If you're in a situation without them, you have to put up with the misery of extrinsic, extrinsic motivation or you can quit. And let's talk about quitting because we have some unique cultural baggage around quitting, okay? Please raise your hand if you've ever taken a piano lesson. Oh my gosh, that's like two-thirds, three-quarters of us. So I took piano lessons too. I was maybe 11 years old. My mom had a piano in her house. She would play songs from the musical Evita and sing along. So I sort of had a model of what piano could be like. And she said, hey, would you like to learn piano? When I was 11, I had three priorities in life. Magic the Gathering, computer games, especially first-person shooters, and skateboarding. So that was some serious competition, right? Piano, mm, new computer game just came out. I'm not sure, Mom. So she sweetened the deal. She's like, listen, just take 10 lessons. I won't teach you. I'll find some like, local neighborhood kid to teach you. And just try it out. See how it goes. And I was convinced. So I said, OK, I'll take the piano lessons. I did them 
All I remember today is how to play a single song called Bone Sweet Bone, which involves about five keys. <laughs> and so I retained nothing from it. Uh, and she said, do you want to keep doing piano? And I said, nope. I got a skateboard to deal with over here. And so piano was done. She let me quit. My dad was into team sports. He was on the swim team when he was a kid. And that was a really positive experience for him. And he said, hey, why don't you join the swim team? And again, you know, there was new Magic the Gathering expansion just came out. I'm like, sorry, Dad, I got some priorities over here. And he said, well, just do it for a season. You know, try it and see if you like it. I was convinced. So I did it. Swim season ended. He said, do you want to keep doing it? And I said, nope. Thank you very much. He let me quit. We have a way of approaching music and sports, which is different from the way that we approach education. The way that we tend to approach education, I think, was best summarized by a recent book by the law, uh, Yale Law professor Amy Chua, Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother. What I love about this book is its directness. On the back cover, Amy Chua describes the many things that she would not let her two middle school-aged daughters do. So these are direct quotes. They were not allowed to attend a sleepover. No TV or computer games. Maybe some of you are still on, on board with this. You're like, okay, a little strict, but wait for it. They were not allowed to choose their own extracurricular activities in school. They were not allowed to not be the number one student in every subject, except gym and drama. So they had to be number one. They were not allowed to play any instrument other than the piano or violin. And my personal favorite, they were not allowed to not play the piano or violin. So I picked up Amy's book, and I was ready to just tear into it and disagree with everything. I read the first chapter, and I read the second chapter. And in the third chapter, I started nodding my head a little bit, like, oh, yeah, this kind of makes sense. And I had to quickly close the book and you know, move it across the table. There's a reason it's a best-selling book. It's a very appealing philosophy. And the philosophy can be essentially distilled as this. No, I'm not going to let you quit because I know what's best for you, and this is it. And I think this is an approach that works supremely well uh, with uh, younger children. Maybe there's a two-year-old who really wants to go to that store, which is just across that busy street. No, you know what's best for that kid, and that's it. It's not running across that street. But as kids get older, and especially once they get into adolescence, this philosophy starts to falter, sometimes in a big way. And it needs to be replaced with the philosophy of consent. And here's how I understand consent. We explain things. So for example, hey, I'd really like you to take a piano lesson because uh, music is really important to me. It's given me something in my life that I, you know, I haven't found anywhere else. And I think you might benefit from this too. You negotiate. Okay, well, you don't want to do swim Maybe we could do rock climbing, or basketball, or soccer, or LARPing, or maybe just go outside and let the sun touch your skin for five minutes. <laughs> you know, we negotiate to find uh, some sort of compromise. And then finally, at the end of the day, you don't force, because you can't force. You can't be, you know, jump into the pool with your kid and force them to move their arms. <laughs> you can't force them to play the piano. And so to try to force is just to invite uh, disagreement and disharmony into your home. 
And so consent makes a lot of sense when we think about music lessons and sports. It makes sense when we think about the medical profession, when we think about systems of governance, when we think about relationships. Everyone pretty much says, yeah, consent, good. So why is it that when we get to the realm of school and education, especially around high school, even with home educating families who are totally down with doing that in the elementary years, once we get into those middle school and high school years, consent tends to get thrown out the window. I know it's best for you, this is it, you have to do this now. I think there's two big reasons why. College and jobs, and we think that if a kid doesn't go to normal high school or does a normal conventional high school curriculum, that they are permanently screwing themselves over for higher education and work opportunities. So let's just deal with these two concerns head on right now. And I'm gonna start with a story about a guy I know named Jonah. Jonah is a middle school dropout. He was battling with his parents over every aspect of school and his teachers. He was skipping school. And so in sixth grade, his parents said, fine, leave school, do nothing, go for it. I think they were more supportive than that, but that was essentially the message, right? <laughs> Jonah only wanted to do one thing at this moment in life, rock climb. And so he spent approximately the next two years rock climbing. That's all he did. Climb, 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 climb. So his middle school years uh, were not filled with academics. They were not filled with, with anything that would make a parent comfortable thinking that Jonah is on a trajectory towards a, you know, productive adulthood. The only thing that could have been worse is if he was playing video games straight for two years, right? <laughs> he also joined a center for self-directed learners, sort of a drop-in place like a homeschooling co-op. And there was lots of other teens there, there was books, there was helpful adults, but nothing was forced upon him. Everything was optional. One day, Jonah picked up a book about just general science, like an introduction to the world of science, and he was flipping through it. And he became curious about chemistry, kind of to his amazement, to everyone's amazement. He was like, ah, oh, what's chemistry? And then he picked up another book about chemistry. And then he watched some YouTube videos and documentaries. All of a sudden, he was going through this little rabbit hole of chemistry, and he decided the logical next step was to go to an intro chemistry course at college. So he lived near the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, and there was a freshman level chemistry course there. He saw it online, and he said, I want to sign up for this. But you're not allowed to audit courses there, especially not as, I think he was 15, not as a 15-year-old. So he and his parents knocked their heads together and said, well, why don't we just email the professor and see if they'll you know, let you in. So Jonah sent a nice, you know, thoughtfully crafted, with parents' help, emailed to the professor and said, hey, my name's Jonah, I'm 15, I'm a homeschooler, I'm super interested in chemistry, I've read these books, I've you know, consumed this other content, and I would just love to join your class. Like, you don't have to give me credit, just let me sit in and I'll take the, the lectures and do the homework and take the tests, and that's all I want. What do you think the professor said? Some professors might say, no, I'm sorry, this violates university policy, but <laughs> let me ask another question. How many emails like this do you think this professor gets a year? <laughs> yeah, we can approximate it to be zero, right? This professor's class is probably filled with college freshmen who are there for, you know, because it's a prereq, because they have to do it as a science requirement. They probably don't really want to be there. 
they were sleeping through it. And then you have this highly motivated 15-year-old emailing you and saying, please let me into your class. I don't want credits. I don't have to be there. I just want to learn chemistry. So yeah, the professor let Jonah in. He took the class, did all the tests, didn't get credit for it, but he did get a letter of recommendation at the end that essentially said, hey, this kid is legit. If he wants to sign up for your class, you should let him in. We're going to come back to Jonah in a moment, but I want to keep talking about how teenagers, including middle school dropouts, do end up in four-year college. This has been a subject that's been very dear and close to my heart, and it was what I wrote my first book about. And so I decided last year to just make a video that condenses everything that I know about how teenage unschoolers and other self-directed learners get into four-year school. And it's kind of hard for me to reproduce in person, and so I'm just going to show you the video. It's very brief, okay? Here we go. I'm Blake Holt, and I've worked with teenage unschoolers for more than a decade. And the number one question that I hear is, can they get into college? The answer is yes, and I'm going to try to explain how in less than one minute with one take. Tests. You'll probably need to take the SAT or the ACT test. For public universities, they might want to see a GED. Some schools might ask you for placement tests. And finally, really competitive schools want to see really competitive tests. Community colleges are the unschooler's best friend. Most teens I know take at least a few classes and sometimes a few semesters to show that they can handle academic work at the college level. Uh, transcripts. You'll need some way to show schools what you've been doing through your high school years. You can do something really simple that your mom makes for you, or something much more fancy and complex, like an artist's portfolio. Don't forget to be an unschooler. Keep doing stuff that interests you and motivates you, because that's what makes you interesting to schools. Do not sacrifice yourself to the altar of college prep. And finally, if you're not sure what a college wants to see from you, ask. Just write or call their admissions department and say, I'm a homeschooler. How do I get in? Nailed it. So listen, you can go to college as an unschooler. And a lot of unschoolers get really great scholarships just based on their test scores. You're not ruining your life by not going to regular school as a teenager. <laughs> My videographer said it looked too much like bean, so I had to clarify that. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, virtually every teenager who I've heard of or worked with who has decided they want to go to four-year college or university has gone. There's no institutional barrier preventing them. They might not do anything that looks academic, for many months, many years. But then when they get their uh, act together and have a reason to go, when they are deciding to go, I've seen complete turnarounds happen where they're like, OK, what do I need to do? Where are the gaps I need to fill in? I need to learn some math? All right, let's learn the math I need to get a decent score on the SAT, or the AP test, or the SAT subject test. Whatever they need to do, it tends to happen. Not every unschooler gets into their first choice college, no, but they all go if they want to. Not, that's right. Not every, high, not every high school graduate gets into their first choice college. That's right. They, they tend to approach college with a bit more level-headedness, yes. Okay, so once they're in college, you've kind of, uh, you've kind of solved one of the big problems related to jobs. And so let me condense this whole idea for you with a haiku, okay? Five, seven, five. Are you ready? Here we go. Go to college, and no one will ever wonder if you quit high school. 
it's the great secret of homeschoolers, right? It's like, it's like your kid goes to, you know, gets their associates or gets their bachelor's degree or their master's degree, and then nobody asks them about their high school upbringing anymore. No one cares. If they're at a cocktail party and some guy is like, oh, what was your SAT score and GPA? Like, don't talk to that guy. That guy's the asshole, okay? Don't talk to that guy. This is our dirty little secret. This is how people with wildly unconventional K-12 backgrounds do just fine in terms of jobs. No one cares once you have your college degree. But, oh no, what about that situation where someone does not go to college and they don't have a high school diploma? Oh my gosh. Don't worry, I wrote a book about that too. Okay. <laughs> so this is what I've seen in 15 years of working with unconventionally educated teens. A lot of the ones who do not feel that desire to go to college or that need to go to college, they end up in the arts. They end up doing tech stuff, you know, classic realms where a degree is not as important as demonstrated skills. They often start their own businesses. They become an entrepreneur of some sort. They go into the skilled trades, find a vocation. Sometimes they take a gap year or two gap years or three gap years. It starts to feel like a gap life. And then they go back to college when they're nice and ready for it at age 20 or 21 or 19, sometimes later. And finally, there are those cases that are hard to you know, put into a box. There are unschoolers who just end up taking really interesting paths through life that nobody could have really anticipated. And that brings us back to someone like Jonah. So Jonah did not end up going to four-year college. He did go to community college for one year to do a vocational training program in outdoor leadership. Because what Jonah wanted to get paid to do was rock climb. And so he took this one-year training program, and he got a job teaching rock climbing, and that experience got him another job becoming a hiking guide, and then he got another job as a hiking guide, and I caught up with him about a year ago. He's 24, and he's working as a hiking guide on the Olympic Peninsula outside Seattle near Olympic National Park. Beautiful area. And his kind of life pattern is he works for eight months doing outdoor guiding. It pays for his room and board, so he gets to save all the money that he makes. And then he spends the, the other three or four months off adventuring somewhere. Most recently, he had gone with friends to Norway and to South Africa for rock climbing trips. That's a pretty cool life. Yeah, not too bad. I asked him, Jonah, what's coming next? And he said, well, funny story, Blake. I'm going to go back to college. And I said, oh, why? He's like, well, you know, that, that love of science never really left me. I'm going to go back and get a bachelor's of science degree. And so he was in community college taking a few classes to kind of fill in the gaps. And he was applying, excuse me, preparing to apply to four-year university. So that's Jonah. Never too late, right? There are many ways in this world, especially in North America, that we go from uh, you know, K through 12 into higher education. And there's a whole spectrum from school to unschool. And it just kind of depends on what your kid is like and what they need at this moment. For some kids, like my sister Olivia, traditional school is a really good fit. And for some moments, for your own kids, it will be a good fit too. So we don't need to write it off completely just because it's conventional. No, that's dogmatic. Community college is an incredible thing that 
other countries don't have, and we are incredibly privileged to have, because at age 16 and often younger, any young person can go into community college, pay a very reasonable amount of money, and get transferable credits. And it's a way to dabble with academics and more formal education in a low-pressure way. In other countries, like a lot of European countries, there are, are alternative schools or perhaps homeschooling options, but there's nothing like community college. And so the transition into four-year university is actually pretty rough. Oftentimes, they have to go back to the last few years of high school in order to kind of play along with the game. So we're lucky. People sometimes ask me, Blake, do you wish you were homeschooled? And I thought back to Bakersfield in the late 90s, thinking about what that would have meant to be homeschooled there and then. And I'm pretty sure I didn't want to be homeschooled there and then. But I would like to have gone to community college. I think I was ready for slightly more serious academics when I was in high school. And so if I had done something like dual enrollment, I think that would have been good for me. Just a guess. Who knows, right? There are alternative schools. Usually when people are introduced to alternative schools, they think of Montessori, Waldorf, Reggio, the kind of classic alternatives. These work really well for a lot of kids, but they drop off pretty precipitously as kids get older. And so, you know, you can throw a stone and hit a Montessori preschool pretty much any, in any, any major city in the US. But then, if you want to find a Montessori elementary school, it's a little bit harder, a little bit pricier. You want to find a middle school, uh-oh, maybe you'll find like a Montessori-inspired uh, one, but not a real one. And then the high schools, like Waldorf is pretty good with high schools, but in general, they're hard to find and they tend to conform more towards the like, conventional, ritzy, uh, college prep type private school model as they get uh, with the older ages. And so a lot of people who start with like, alternative or progressive schools assume that they have to send their kids back to regular middle school or high school. Not true. Because we have homeschooling, the worst word in the world, right? <laughs> because everyone assumes just by nature of the word that we must school at home. And this does work for a while for some kids and for younger kids, but most parents figure out sooner or later, they're like, oh boy, okay, all my assumptions were pretty ungrounded about this. And they start moving more in the direction of eclectic uh, homeschooling or unschooling. But homeschooling gives us a wonderful legal cover to do many other interesting things, right? Like micro-schooling. Some people think of micro-schools just as extremely small schools, like a school where there's 15 kids. Up in the San Francisco Bay Area, microschooling describes a sort of ecosystem, uh, like a homeschool co-op group where parents get together and they hire great teachers to teach single classes that are specifically oriented around their kids' interests. And so maybe you find someone who knows like computer science, like an underemployed recent PhD graduate, <laughs> and you say, hey, we're looking for someone to teach like how you build Minecraft, like how the game is built from the ground up, because our kids are just crazy over this. They would love to learn this. And so you say, we'll pay you 50 bucks an hour. And this poor, you know, unemployed grad student is like, yes, please, thank you. <laughs> and you have a really qualified teacher who teaches something that's maybe just a few days a week, an hour a day. And so they get to build up this sort of a la carte menu of both academic and non-academic opportunities their kids. That's pretty cool. And that only happens because of homeschooling laws. Uh, there's world schooling. You know, parents pulling their kids out of school and they go to travel for a while. Maybe one parent can work remotely or both parents you know, rent out the house and you live off the, the rental income. 
And then they go to somewhere like Thailand so their kid can learn from getting dysentery. You know, this is world schooling. Uh, I'm just kidding about that. Um, world schooling is something that is an easy entry into the world of homeschooling and unschooling for a lot of families because it's immediately sexy. It's like we can just take our kids and travel and they can learn just by like, interacting with people and doing volunteering, meeting other kids abroad. Yeah, they can. And then there are the waters that I've been swimming in. Unschooling, the second worst word in the world, right? Because <laughs> unschooling just means not school. It feels very anti, very rebel, rebellious. You know, do you have an undishwasher in your kitchen? <laughs> Tell me. I don't know. Maybe. Does that mean toaster? Does that mean something else? You know, it doesn't mean anything, right? To me, unschooling means full-time self-directed learning. You know, follow the child wherever they may go. And finally, there are self-directed learning centers, because a lot of people, they look at all the homeschooling options. Maybe they start with traditional school, not going to work for my kid. Alternative schools, too expensive or they don't exist. Homeschooling sounds cool, but both our parents work, or I'm a single parent family. And so what do I do if I want to let my kid be self-directed, but I can't be there for them? Well, that's where self-directed learning centers one that I've worked with in LA up in Pasadena is urban homeschoolers. I think they're a good model for a type of place where you can go and there are other kids, there are resources, books, caring adults, drama groups, etc. And all of it is optional. You just have to be nice and not break things. And so that is a way to be an unschooler while still having a peer community, having these resources and other adults. Uh, and it's, it's a wonderful medium for a lot of people. People who are new into this world, when I've given this talk, they say, okay, this is a nice little rainbow spectrum you have here, Blake, but what do I do on Monday? Like, what, what actually happens now? And so I added this slide to this presentation. Here's Dr. Blake's prescription for anyone who's new to this world. If you're figuring out what to do with your kid who's in middle school or high school or who will soon be there, look at your local centers and schools. See what the options are there. And then figure out what your homeschooling options are, including the wacky stuff like the unschoolers and the world schoolers and maybe there's a micro school network where you are, whatever the co-ops are. And then when you have to choose, I think there are two metrics to focus on. For adolescents especially, they are very concerned about peers. They want to be around a group of people who they feel a part of, new friends, people who understand them. And so that sense of community is paramount. You might be around a homeschool whatever co-op where there's a lot of kids, but it's not the right community for your kids. Maybe an alternative school or even a conventional school might have a better community in that moment. And so focus on community because peers are super important. And then engagement. How bad does your kid want to be there? In regular school, when there's a snow day, I know we're in Los Angeles, so this doesn't really apply, but <laughs> when school is canceled, overwhelmingly kids cheer, right? <laughs> Woo! Free day. When school, or let's say alternative school, or the, the homeschool, whatever, meetup is canceled, you want your kids to cry. Okay? That's what I'm telling you. You want your children to be sad. That's my takeaway message. Um, when, when their educational option is not available that day. That means high engagement. There's a big shift that happens for parents. I'm sure many of you have gone through this already, where you go from being the boss or the manager of your kid's education. This often looks like uh, mom or dad, the homework cop, uh, who's ensuring that everything is being done correctly, there are no mistakes. You have to shift from that role into being more of a consultant. And I really like the word consultant because 
if you think about what makes a good business consultant, right? It's someone who is very knowledgeable, has expertise, and this person goes into a business and tries to understand it. It says, all right, I've identified these kind of challenges and problems that you have related to your goals, and here's my advice. Take it or leave it. If the business takes the advice and succeeds, wonderful, everyone's happy. If the business doesn't take the advice and says, no, no, we're going to do what we think is best, then maybe they'll be fine, maybe they won't be. But fundamentally, the consultant retains a bit of distance from the whole process. A bad business consultant is somebody who breaks down in tears when the business who you know, she consulted is failing. You're like, oh, I really messed this up. No, you didn't mess this up. The business messed up. You did your best, but fundamentally, it's not your business. It's not your life. It's your kid's life. And so you can consult. You can still be a loving parent. It doesn't mean unparenting or abandoning a relationship. It means you're not trying to be their manager anymore, especially for adolescents. And this comes with a nice bonus. Parents then have a mandate to focus on their own self-directed learning. If you want to be a model for your kids, pick up that foreign language that you were learning. Go to those dance classes. Maybe take a bath and read a nice book every once in a while, right? This is you focusing on your own learning, because you don't have to be the boss or manager anymore. I'm going to finish up with the stories of those three kids you met at the beginning of the talk. So Gavin, the one from Nebraska, who was really into filmmaking and writing, but as soon as he went to high school, he knew he wouldn't have time to do any of that. He and his parents talked about homeschooling, and they said, let's give this a shot. So he left school. They started doing conventional homeschooling, very quickly saw that that wouldn't work for Gavin, and went more in the direction of unschooling. And Gavin spent the next 18 months making films. He made movies with his friends. He wrote screenplays. He worked at a children's summer camp for film, so he taught film to younger kids. And this year, Gavin was supposed to be a senior in high school, but he's not in high school because he's at the Seattle Film Institute studying film as a 17-year-old. Go, Gavin. Kim, the one who was struggling with sleep issues and all the homework was piling up, like she was a good student, but school was still not working for her. She and her family were looking for local centers, and they found a self-directed learning center called North Star out in western Massachusetts. And she joined the community and instantly had a bunch of friends. As she told me over email, she said, these people accepted me and all my quirky illnesses. And she was able to pick up her love of guitar again. She joined not one, not two, but three North Star teen bands. She got introduced to photography and started getting really into it. And then she was mentoring other teens in photography and guitar. She used those skills uh, to get picked up as an intern for a local uh, artist-owned theater ensemble group. And she became their social media person for a year. And when the internship ended, they said, oh, Kim, please don't leave us. Please, we'll pay you. And so now she is their hired social media person. And she's 17, and she is preparing for college admissions. Go, Kim. And finally, Tom, the one who was super smart but bored, and that turned into anxiety and depression syndromes, had to leave school, came back junior year, really optimistic, but soon he realized not going to happen. His family also went looking for local alternatives and found a democratic free school, a Sudbury model school, in the suburbs of Chicago. He joined that, 
Immediately, the anxiety lifted. Did all of the anxiety go away? No. Alternative education is not a silver bullet. But it was a lot better. He made friends. He was highly engaged. He spent his next two years there. And now he's a freshman at DePaul University in Chicago. So if I've done a good job with this talk, if you've come in thinking, oh my gosh, my kid doesn't go to high school. It's going to ruin their life. I hope that I've at least taken you down a notch to the skeptic's position of, okay, will conventional education actually guarantee my kid's success? Maybe if you were there already, then you're going to leave thinking, oh man, what other incredible opportunities await my kid outside of school? I'm Blake Bowles. That's my talk. Thank you. I'll just tell you a little bit more about how you can find my stuff online. And then I think we have a little bit of time for questions and answers. Uh, I got my website, blakebowles.com. That's where all my writing and videos and uh, my monthly email newsletter can be found. That's where I announce like, where I'm going to be next, what I'm working on. And I have a podcast where I've inter interviewed some really interesting people. It's called Off Trail Learning. Find it on any podcast app. I've been running my, uh, my company, Unschool Adventures, for over 10 years now. This has been my little laboratory to get to know teenagers who don't go to school. Because when you have a group of 11 teens and two or three adults traveling together in a foreign country for six weeks, you run out of things to talk about. Okay, So you get to go into the deeper stuff. And so this is how I've gotten to, known, gotten to know a lot of teens and seen them grow up into their 20s over the past decade. Uh, there's a trip that is going to New Zealand later this year that's already full, and I'm scheming up a trip that I'm going to lead uh, next spring that will literally go around the world, visiting six different countries, visiting different uh, conventional and alternative education uh, systems in each of those countries. That will be a big one. So get on the newsletter for that one, okay? <laughs> and then finally, if you want to find me on social media, do so on Facebook, because that's where all the homeschooling moms hang out.